Hello. Welcome to The Bittersweet Life. We're so glad you're here. I'm Katie Sewell. I've been working in radio for over 15 years. A few years ago, I took a risk. I quit my job. My job as the lead producer of a daily public radio show. And I moved to Rome. Just for a year. And that is where this show began. And Rome is where my co-host Tiffany Parks lives, although she grew up here in Seattle with me. We met on the school bus in the sixth grade. And now we host this show together for you. Whether you boldly moved overseas like Tiffany did or reluctantly moved with much anxiety and regret like I did. And this isn't just a show for expats. It's a show for repats and explorers and people trying to get their courage up to do something new. It's a show about taking risk, trying new things, about exploration and discovery, about learning to fit in. Questions of home, questions of belonging, of what we want from the life that we have, about what we want to see, about how we want to change. Each show has a theme, so you can jump around if you wish. Or better yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows, and join us for the entire journey. The early episodes where we are both in Rome, the current episodes where I'm in Seattle and Tiffany is in Rome, and the future episodes when I move temporarily again to New Orleans. Join us, subscribe, tell your friends, and let us be your friends on your journey. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I have a special guest with me today. Scott Gurian is the host and producer of the podcast titled Far From Home. You can find it at farfromhomepodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And it's a show I've been listening to for, what, all 12 episodes that are out so far. And some of you may be behind the game, but... Scott was nice enough to actually just drop by Seattle, so I thought I'd talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, I should also mention, you also, just like me, have a background in public radio, mm-hmm. too. So we have that nerddom in common. That's true. Which is great. I don't want to give anything about the show away, but can you tell us something about what this first season is about? Okay, so, well, yeah, let me start, kind of zoom out first. So I, I described Far From Home as a podcast documenting my unexpected adventures and chance encounters with interesting people around the world. Okay. And so on this first season, I've always loved traveling. I love going out of the country to different places. I've always loved experiencing different cultures. And as a reporter, when I've done radio in the past, the coolest experiences I've ever had have been when I've been traveling, doing reporting abroad in, in other countries. I went to Haiti after the earthquake a number of years ago. I've been in Mexico and a bunch of different places. My brother and I tend to take a big trip every year over Christmas and New Year's. Uh, Usually we don't have a lot of family in the area. And a few years ago, we went to Cuba and I was doing some reporting while I was down there. It was right after Obama was president and he had announced the the reopening of relations between the U.S. and Cuba. And so while we were down there, we were in a tour group and we met this woman, Rosie, who was from Australia. She was there with her husband, Alan, and we became good friends with her. And all of us in our tour group kind of bonded because our guide was, he was not a very good guide. 
company kind of abandoned our whole tour group at one point. So we all, we all kind of bonded together. And uh, so <laughs> after the trip, we kept in touch with Rosie and, and her husband, Alan, and on Facebook and, and so forth. And a few months later, she contacted us and she said, hey, I'm planning this big trip with my best friend, Jane, who lives in the UK. Do you and your brother want to join us? And we said, sure. Rosie was planning on going on this road trip, driving about 11,000 miles from London all the way to Mongolia. Um, it's a part of an wow. a, our annual event called the Mongol Rally. Uh, this takes place every year. There's several hundred teams that do it every year. They raise money for charity. It's not a race, but you basically just try to get from the beginning to the end in, without your car breaking down too badly. And uh, you, you don't all go together. You start all start at the same place. You end at the same place, but you choose your own route in between. So in past years, some teams have actually started in London, and they've taken detours all the way up through Scandinavia, north of the Arctic Circle, and then came down. Uh, we decided to take a route that was similar to what many of the teams did, what they call a southern route. So we went southeast through Europe and then across Turkey, Iran, and then all the stands, and then up through Mongolia, and, and eventually actually it ended right just above Mongolia and Siberia. So um, I decided to launch this podcast. It seemed perfect for a podcast. There's so much to document when you're going on a trip like that. And not just the trip itself, but even all the preparations. It basically took us a year to plan between, you know, how we first decided to do it, how the whole trip came about, and then buying a car, you know, in, in London. The car was in London, so in the UK. So the steering wheel, of course, was on the other side. Neither my brother nor I knew how to drive stick. So that was a whole, oh, you know... Yeah. Uh, learning curve and, and, you know, learning basic car repairs, getting all the visas we needed to get, planning the route. There's just so much that went into it. There's some rule about what kind of car you can drive, right? Yes. So the organizers of the event, there's not a lot of rules of the event, but there are a few. One of them is you have to raise at least 1,000 British pounds for charity. Another rule is that there's no support on the road. You know, if you break down somewhere, you're lost. There's no one you could call back in London to help you. You've got to basically figure it out on your own. And the other kind of main rule is that I guess a, a trip, a road trip from London to Mongolia through 18 countries or whatever wouldn't be exciting and challenging enough on its own. <laughs> right. So they make all the teams drive in basically a little tiny crappy car. You, you choose what car you want, but it has to have an engine of 1.2 liters or smaller, which for people who don't know anything about cars, for comparison, I drive a Toyota Prius back home in, in New Jersey, and that's 1.8 liters. So 1.2 liters or smaller is basically like a little hatchback a car that's not definitely not made to drive a quarter of the way around the planet. Um, it's a <laughs> car that someone described to me. It's like a, an old lady would drive to, you know, go pick up her groceries around town. Yeah, I know that in one of the earlier episodes, it's, you talk about trying to buy a car while being overseas. Yeah, that was a challenge. Yeah. Can you tell us what car you ended up with? What so kind of we car? ended up with a Nissan Micra, which they don't have here in the States. I think they have it in Canada. It's, it's popular in Europe. They have a lot of smaller cars in Europe, and I think they have them in Japan as well. It's, again, like this little tiny hatchback. The one we got was only one liter. I think we should have gotten something 1.2 liters. I think that extra <laughs> 0.2 liters would have made a big difference because these little cars, they're just not even, they don't have a lot of power. I don't know the horsepower off the top of my head, but even just going up steep hills. Mm -hmm. um, it's okay if you're on a highway, a paved road or something, but, it, you know, when you're going in some of the places we were going kind of in you know, where it's not paved and it's gravel or whatever, and you're in a remote area, it's just really hard, you know, if you're going at a slow speed to go up some of these steep roads that we were on and ended up being a problem, you know, later on in the trip. Yeah. There's so many different things about this trip that could give you pause when, <laughs> when Rosie suggests that you do it, not to mention driving as far as you're going to drive, driving in a little tiny car that's likely to break down. 
going through a whole bunch of countries that you've never been to before. For you personally, was there anything that was the most hesitating for you? Well, the timing kind of worked out a little bit bad for us because we we had planned this whole thing out and, you know, we're going through all these different countries. There's things that can happen with the news, geopolitics, wars can break out, you, you know, all sorts of things. Because again, we, we ended up going through 18 different countries and each one of them has their own politics and news, internal affairs and everything. And, you know, this was last summer when we went. Things had been heating up in Turkey. There had been the bombing at the airport there in, in Istanbul. There had been a few kind of different terrorist events around the country. And then uh, just six days before we were due to arrive at the border to enter Turkey from Bulgaria, there was an, an attempted coup. So the timing was just kind of really bad for us. You know, a lot of the teams were we were all in the same situation. Many of them were dri- planning on driving through Turkey, and we did some kind of scrambling around at the last minute. What do we do? Do we still go through Turkey? It would be really hard at the last minute to try to do a detour. You know, you'd have to go all the way around the Black Sea to the north going through Russia, and then there's complications with the Russian visa because many people's visas only allow for double entry, and we would have to go in and out of Russia three times if we went that way. You know, it's just so many complications. It sets off a chain of reactions. We reached out to some friends of friends in Turkey. We spoke to them. We said, hey, what's the situation like there on the ground? Because it's so hard from media reports and everything. You really want to get as close to firsthand sources as possible in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. And we looked online. And in the end, we decided to compromise. We did go through Turkey, but we purposely avoided Istanbul and Ankara just to be extra cautious. And in retrospect, we probably would have been fine, but we just wanted to be extra safe. So we just entered, we drove right past Istanbul, stayed in a little town, Bolu, in the middle of the country, and then kept driving. We actually went down, did go down the Cappadocia in central Turkey, which is amazing. These prehistoric, like these cave homes people live in, and they launch hot air balloons every morning. It was just gorgeous. And it was crazy because we, you know, driving through Turkey, you would almost never have known there had been an attempted coup just six days earlier. Uh, there were a lot of flags people were flying. I think people patriotic or nationalistic or whatever who kind of came out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. But remarkably little police presence or military presence or anything. Um, no problem getting into the country. Not, not at all. I mean, the, there were tons of people at the border. There was a big, long line. There, people didn't turn away. I mean, you know, keep in mind, there's a lot of people who just live in Bulgaria and Turkey in that region who are always going across anyway. It was weird for us as tourists from far away, but it seemed like the attempted coup was crushed pretty quickly from what we heard, and life kind of went back to normal. So, yeah, there, there were a few places like that that some of our friends and family were pretty worried about us going. Turkey was one of them. Iran was another one. Yeah, they ended up being fine. We didn't, you know, Turkey was the one I was worried about. I wasn't so worried about Iran because we had done our research and we heard that a lot of tourists go there. There are not so many Americans, but tourists from other places. And as Americans and Americans, Brits and Canadians have to hire a tour guide to take you through. So we knew there'd be someone with us. You know, we weren't going on our own. We, we'd be, you know, someone kind of watching after us. Not a minder, but it was like a tour guide, you know. Oh, you did. So yeah. did that person have to get into your car and just go across the country yeah, he with ro- you? Yeah, he rode with us. His name was Mehdi. And uh, he, <laughs> we somehow made room in our car with all of our gear. And uh, he, he rode with us uh, the whole way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you take this trip, and I know because you and I went out for a drink last night that mm-hmm. it took you about seven weeks to do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, you survived. Yes. Which, you know, I'm not going to give away anything else about the trip because mm-hmm. you have all these ups and downs that are pretty interesting so mm-hmm. far. And I don't want to blow the story for anybody. But sure. I have two questions. So you make it in seven weeks. Does that mean you're constantly on the move or are you spending time in places? 
it depends where. I mean, we did do a lot of driving. There was a lot of long days. Part of the problem was just these cars, like they were slower than, you know, a regular car. I mean, especially if you're, you know, on kind of hilly terrain and the roads weren't always, it depends on the country. Like Turkey, the highways were excellent, but then like Bulgaria, Romania, they were pretty bad. And in Iran, you know, it wasn't so good always. So it took us a lot of time to get places and we ended up being on the road. We were driving most days. Iran, we went a little slower because we knew, you know, we were with a guide and that's, we thought that was kind of a once in a lifetime thing. We kind of went a little more gradually and, and did some sightseeing. And then in Uzbekistan, we had some, we, we had a lot of car problems. I'll, I won't say too much more than that, but um, there was a point in Uzbekistan where it, we basically got stuck there for about a week while we were waiting on repairs, you know, to get completed. But otherwise, most days we were driving, yes. That's a lot of sitting. It is. Like if it were up to you as a person who travels a lot and reports yeah. a lot, was it harder to report? Was it more yeah. frustrating than you would have expected? I would definitely like to, if I ever did a trip like this again, I would definitely like to go to much slower pace. I mean, I mean, granted, just the nature of this trip, we met all kinds of people, had crazy experiences and adventures. We could have potentially had even a lot more if we'd been able to go a little slower for example, in Iran, we got so many offers from people, that, you know, just Persian hospitality. People are so incredibly friendly in Iran. You would chat with them for five minutes. They find out you're an American. They're so excited. They have so many questions. They're so fascinated. And just after a five, 10 minute chat, suddenly they're inviting you to come to their house, come for dinner, come for tea, meet their family, stay with them. And I would have loved to have taken people up on those offers. Unfortunately, you know, we kind of had a planned itinerary with the guide and we just had to keep going. But I, I would love to go back at some point and to a lot of these places and go at a slower pace. Mm-hmm. Was it an expensive trip? Not as expensive as you'd think, just because, I mean, you know, the gas, of course, which varies from country to country. Some places it was incredibly cheap. Other places, it, you know, Turkey it was more expensive. It depends how you do the trip. There, a lot of these teams were just kind of camping out most of the time or staying mm-hmm. in hostels or sleeping in their cars for them, it was very cheap. Um, my brother and I, we were going with Rosie and her friend Jane. Who It's funny, most of the rally participants were kind of young kids in their 20s and 30s, and Rosie and Jane didn't fit that mold. They were they're actually, you know, middle-aged women. And so, they, you know, understandably, they enjoy their creature comforts. And so we most nights stayed in some kind of hotel, you know, usually not anything very fancy. So it was, you know, probably a little bit more expensive for us. Um, we weren't sleeping in tents. So we, had, we brought tents and everything, and, and there, there was like one night in in Tajikistan. We were like three miles high and we camped up there because it was the absolute middle of nowhere. And we did end up sleeping in our cars a few times. It was not the most comfortable. We were kind of <laughs> stranded, didn't have a choice. But in addition to the money we raised for charity, people also gave us some donations to help cover our expenses. We had some sponsors. We had a lot of stickers on the car from different companies and, and friends' businesses that helped pitch in for our costs. Oh, that's cool. How did yeah. you set that up? Word of mouth, just, just of reaching mouth. out to people and uh, yeah, trying to spread the word. Yeah, yeah. So you were saying that you and your brother take a trip every year. Yeah, uh, this one probably being one of the most ambitious yes, of all. Yes, definitely. <laughs> how did well one? How did you come to do that together? Take a trip all the time. I mean, our mom died a few years ago, and we figured we don't have a lot of family in the area, and especially over Christmas and New Year's, we, rather than just sit around, we might as well do something. Um, we're not going to just cook a big Christmas dinner for ourselves. <laughs> no. So, yeah, we we went to Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands one year. We went to Thailand and Cambodia one year, and Cuba, as I mentioned. 
so it, you know we both have always really loved traveling like i said i've done some traveling as, as a journalist as a reporter uh, my brother is a professional photographer he used to work with a, a well-known photographer uh, named joe mcnally they did a lot of stuff for national geographic and for uh, fedex basically if you walk in a fedex and you see the picture of the delivery guy with the package under his arm in shanghai or somewhere like my brother's former boss probably shot that photo for fedex huh. You know, they were traveling, you know, my, for the few years my brother worked with Joe, they were traveling nonstop around the world, like either on assignments or teaching classes or workshops. And my brother was racking up like 100,000 airline points per year. So wow. he's he's seen a lot more of the world than I have. After this trip, I think I'm up to around 40 countries or so, which I, I guess is still impressive. But yeah, we've just always both really loved traveling, seeing different cultures and everything. This seemed like the type of opportunity we, could, we couldn't pass up. And any problem, since it's such a kind of high-stress trip in many ways, yeah. do you guys, as happy-go-lucky, get along as well as you did when you started it? Well, I mean, you <laughs> were all cooped up in you know tiny cars. Uh, so it was my brother and myself in one car, and then Rosie and Jane were in a second car, and we were caravanning together. Occasionally we'd switch, but usually it was just my brother, me, and J- Rosie and Jane together. And yeah, yeah, you're cooped up in a tiny space for a long time. I've, I mean, I've never, uh, we've never taken a trip this long together. I've never taken a trip like this long period. I mean, I, from start to finish, I was basically out of the country, out of the U.S. for four months because it was seven weeks there, and then I stayed at the end for a little, and then uh, another. I guess spoiler alert: I decided at the end I wanted to keep recording stuff for my podcast, so I actually decided to drive all the way back. Believe it or not, wow! So it was alone. To, uh, and I had a friend. My, so my brother and Rosie and Jane they flew home, and I had a, a friend who actually flew out to meet me. She had been house sitting in in Denmark, and oh, so wow. she flew out to Siberia and met me, and we drove back together. So yeah, it was eighteen thousand miles round trip for me. Wow. So um, so all together there and back was. F- basically four months on the road for me, which is, I've never taken a trip that long. Yeah, it's, you know, we have our disagreements at times. We have a lot in common, my brother and myself. Uh, We also have very different personalities. For example, you know, when it comes to traveling, I'm much more of a planner and I, you know, Mm -hmm. plot everything out. He's someone who likes to wing it more and figure things out as he goes along. So it's very kind of existential kind of differences in how you, you, you go about things especially on a trip like this. Yeah. So that, you know, that was a sort of source of tension at some times, but we, we generally got along. Well, what about the fact that you're sticking a microphone in his face all the time? Yeah, he's used to, I'm, <laughs> he's used to, I think, having a journalist in the family. Um, I've been doing that long enough. I mean, I guess like, you know, anyone when there's, you have a mic in front of you is a little bit of a performative aspect, mm-hmm. but he... He, I think he's comfortable enough with that. And Rosie and Jane as well. Like, you know, it's because it was such a long trip, all of us together. And at first they were like, well, tell me when you start recording or whatever. After, you know, it didn't take more than a day or two before that we they just got used to it. And mm-hmm. they knew that I was pretty much always going to be recording and they were comfortable with it. On rare occasions, they would say just this is off the record or don't record this. But that, that was the exception to the rule. Yeah, which of course is what I want to know, right? Is this stuff that's off the record? I don't know if that's an official strategy, but that's a strategy I've used in the past too, where if Mm -hmm. you are trying to record somebody in a very particular, maybe extremely personal moment, that the way you work up into those personal moments is you just have the microphone in their face so much that it feels weird that they, if if you don't have it in their face, basically. yeah, They forget it's there. You sort of become exactly. something approaching a fly in the wall. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Yeah, I did that with a, a young woman here in Seattle who let me tape her, the birth of her child, and oh, wow. I didn't know her prior oh, wow. to that. And so I just spent weeks 
constantly being at her house with a microphone in her face, you know. And mm. So there you go. What were the biggest difficulties of trying to document this experience from the road? It's hard because I couldn't bring all of my professional recording gear that I would normally have uh, that I would have loved to have had on a trip like this, on an assignment like this. You know, I worked in public radio for years, so I have a big fancy, what in radio terms they call shotgun mic. It's a big kind of long mic that you don't need to be right up in front of someone. It can record good sound from several feet away. And especially when you're moving around a lot on a trip like this, like it's hard to, you know, things aren't going to be mic'd perfectly, you know. Yeah. So a mic like that would have been ideal for a situation like this. Um, I also have this big fuzzy thing which goes over the microphone. They call kind of the housing a, a Zeppelin because it kind of looks like a blimp. And the furry thing that goes over it in radio parlance, we sometimes jokingly call it a dead cat because it yeah, kind of looks like that. it really that. does, yeah. Um, and it, it dramatically, it cuts down on the wind like you could go out almost in a hurricane or something in really strong winds and when that thing is over the mic that just air barrier around the mic plus the furry thing it just cuts down and and you know you get really great recordings under pretty much any situation and I couldn't bring all kinds of stuff like that on this trip or or even my big fancy you know recorder that I would normally use because we were going on you know land crossings across all these borders um, they were searching our cars. We didn't know quite how thorough the searches would be going through our luggage. I didn't want to be flagged as a journalist. I didn't, you know, I didn't apply for a journalist visa. If I had, I might not, not have gotten into many of these countries, places like Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, mm -hmm. countries that traditionally aren't necessarily friendly to journalists or, you know, um, it just would have made the situation a lot more difficult. So I couldn't bring all of my fancy gear. I had to bring much smaller more discreet gear that didn't look as professional, uh, sometimes even just record with my iPhone to kind of go a little bit undercover just not to raise eyebrows or, you know, I, I didn't want people to notice me basically. If I had walked up to people and, you know, always said, well, okay, I'd like to do an interview with you now. Like, you know, I'm mm -hmm. going to take out my gear and I, you know, m the vast majority of what I got I wouldn't have been able to get. I, you know, I didn't lie to people, and I, I you feel it out on a case by case basis, yeah. you know, and and judge how to go about it. But it was definitely raised some challenges and and difficulties that I wouldn't normally encounter just recording back home under normal situations. So, but you weren't, or were you recording people without them knowing? No, I. It depends on the situation. If it was like an interview, without you know, I was interviewing yeah. someone, I I would let them know, um, or I'd have the mic right there. I mean, it was pretty obvious they could see that. There was sound like going across borders sometimes. I was just recording the sound of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, normally that's not a place you'd be allowed to record. And I had, you know, a microphone is sort of hidden. And, you know, so I could record the sound of interacting with the border guards and everything. There's no way I could have told them that and been, been allowed. They would never allow me to mm -hmm. do that. But that's more kind of incidental tape. Like you hear them kind of in the background, but it's not like me interviewing them, you know, if I, if it was like an interview, I, I would make sure I would ask permission. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people who don't work in radio on a regular basis wouldn't know as much as I know what an ambitious undertaking this is that yeah. you um, would have recorded so much over a seven week, even more, I guess, because the podcast will go on after right. this one adventure, but that you would have recorded so much tape in that period of time. The fact of the matter is you have to go through all that tape yes. and then figure out how to tell a story, which can take a lot. Uh, yeah. What is your approach to this? How are you figuring it out? So basically, just from the trip, that, you know, the the way back, that's going to be on future seasons. But just the trip there, the the, the seven uh, weeks, the 52 days, I've got about 65 hours of tape I recorded. Right. So, uh, yeah, I've got my work cut out for me, clearly. <laughs> so I've been slowly 
sorting through it. And as I said, the first few episodes were kind of leading up to the event. So there was a whole episode on buying the car and all that. It was an episode on the preparations, uh, getting the visas and and what are we going to eat in these countries, those sorts of questions. And then since the trip again, now it's just kind of chronological following us on the route. So uh, I've been sorting through my tape little by little, um, rolling out episodes. And, you know, when, when you record that much stuff, 75% 75% of it, maybe more, is just garbage. Like, it's just yeah. long bits of tape that, you know, it's it's not very interesting. And, you know, but I just wanted to make sure I recorded as much as possible so I didn't miss any moments. And I, I still inevitably did because you can't be recording it from the moment you wake up till when you go to sleep. You know, there are you shut it on and off at times. So I have a lot of stuff. And, and so it's just been taking a lot of time to slowly kind of sort through it. One of the things that I love one of the episodes, I don't remember which episode number it is, but on the day then that the rally actually kicks off. And for whatever real reason, I remember that one of the people or one of the groups that you talked to was, I believe, two elderly women. Oh, yes. Yes. Do you... I would just... They were the two. Yeah. So Rosie and Jane, they're, they're like they thought at first that they would be the oldest ones. They're, you know, middle aged, like in their 50s. And you know, then they found out these two women who are from Scotland, or they're in their 70s. I think the one woman was originally planning on going on this trip with her husband, and then her husband died, or he was killed somehow, I guess, in an accident or something. And so she spoke to her best friend, and they decided to go together. And it's just a really sweet story. And, you know, people were blown away, because again, it's these mostly young guys, kids in their 20s and 30s, and then these women in their 70s planning on driving, you know, to Mongolia. Yeah, you give them a lot of credit. It's really amazing. I hope I'm doing that kind of thing when I'm that age. Yeah, right. Because it has this sort of raucous quality to it as a concept that you're going to take these little cars, you're going to drive across all these countries. And mm-hmm. and it does sort of have that natural, you got to be in your 20s to pull it off thing. Right. And I think that, at least for us, like so many of our listeners are getting their courage up to try things like this yeah. or, you know, are entering retirement age and might mm-hmm. not think to do something like this. Right, so. right. But, I mean, you'd have to admit it was a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's part of the adventure. Yeah. There's a quote that I I put on my website. Uh, A friend uh, told me this from, it's from Thomas Cahill, who's a writer. He's written Mm -hmm. about travel and adventure. And he says, an adventure is simply physical and emotional discomfort recalled in tranquility. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is so true um, because you, you're in the middle of these situations. You're like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? I could be back home. I could be lying on a beach on a normal vacation like most people would take. And here I am broken down at the side of the road in Turkmenistan or somewhere. And, um, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you're like, why did I do this? But then you return home and you hopefully and you have these wonderful stories to tell and adventures and people, you know, people admire you for it and you you become the best storyteller at the party and uh, it's you know memories you have for a lifetime one last question yes i know you're a reporter so that you're always looking for stories but do you find that you sort of live your life as a story so that you have the good stories to tell am i going on these adventures more to tell the stories myself as opposed to reporting yeah it's part of your story it's not like you telling the story of somebody else oh yeah that's part of it i think so definitely I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I want to have more adventures and do crazy things. And I, as I said, you know, the disagreement with my brother and myself, I'm always someone who's very much a planner and, and even just coming here to Seattle and looking at the maps and figuring out, you know, where do I go? And and I 
aim to be someone who, I mean, I, I do still like to plan and, you know, cause I always have this fear that I'll travel somewhere and I didn't look things up ahead of time. And it's a part of the world I'll never, never return to again. And if I just driven 10 miles out of the way, I could have seen this really cool thing. And then I end up all the way back home and I'm like, damn, like I, you know, I missed that opportunity. So I, you know, I, I think there's some, definitely something to be said for a, a certain amount of planning, but I think Hopefully, in the future, if I do trips like this again, I, I really would love to travel at a much slower pace so I could do some of the planning, but then also allow some time for chance, these chance encounters, meeting people, just having things happen that sometimes these unplanned things are, are the most interesting and exciting uh, where you never know when you go to sleep in the evening. You never would have imagined when you woke up that morning where you ended up and what you were doing by the end of the day. Yeah. Scott Gurian is the host and producer of the podcast titled Far From Home. You can find it at farfromhomepodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. Do you have anywhere else you'd want to direct people to go if they want to read more, do more? They can search for Far From Home podcast on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or follow me, any of those places. Uh, Instagram, I'm always posting pictures and videos from my travels so people might like that all right well thanks so much for coming in thank you for having me this is the bittersweet life i'm katie sewell talk to you next week thanks for all the ways you support us give us a good rating on itunes maybe five stars if you like the show it will help other people discover that we exist thank you you're the best